Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to either view this on YouTube or listen on iTunes and Spotify. We always invite you to share your input with us about the podcast. You can reach me at fredjeffsmith at cox.net. Fred Jeff Smith at Cox.net. Just let us know how we're doing and what we can do to make the podcast better and more interesting to you. I'm very delighted to welcome today uh, a good friend and a church member, a community servant, a judge in our community, Judge Yvette Alexander, who's here with us on the Thrive Podcast. Judge, thank you for taking the time to come and share with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be on the podcast. Tell me. You are currently a city court judge. You're running for district court judge. Can you help me and others who might not understand where the lines are drawn between city court and district court and all? Because when when people say judge, they just think judge. judge. They don't always have a clear understanding of that. Can you help differentiate the various levels of judges? I will. And I'm with you on the fact that people can't differentiate between it because they will call me on matters that I have no jurisdiction over. <laughs> but I just take the call and I'll call some of my um, some other judges on the district court who can help me. Yes, ma'am. So that's been going on for 24 years. But the difference is the Baton Rouge City Court is a misdemeanor court. Okay. It only handles misdemeanor cases, no felony cases at all. And for civil cases, the threshold is $35,000. Okay. There are five judges on our court, and we are elected within the city limits of Baton Rouge. So it's not a parish-wide? It's not. The city court is a city court, and it's only elected in the um, city limits. Now, they have changed the city limits from time to time, so whenever they expand the city limits, then they expand the boundaries of that court. Okay. Um, There are five judges, and we were elected— Two years ago, our next election won't be until 2024. Okay. Uh, You're not just a city court judge, but you're the chief city court judge uh, currently. I am. And and help me to understand, help us to understand what that means. So in Baton Rouge City Court, we have an administrative judge who kind of handles the administrative things that go on in our court, and that rotates from year to year. Before I was on the bench, it was also the chief judge was also the administrative judge, but... Lately, um, they voted to have the administrative judge handle like the day-to-day things, and the chief judge is, quote, the senior judge on the bench. Okay. That means that I have been there the longest, and so I, I, um, I possess that. I'm the first African American to do that because yes, it, it's because of longevity. Um, when I am gone and I leave to go to the district court, then Judge Kelly Temple will be the chief judge. Okay. Okay. That was one of the things that went into my determination to do that. Um, I know that I've worked really hard for 24 years to get city court in a place where I feel comfortable with how it's being run, what's Mm -hmm. going on, the things that are happening. And I feel like when I leave to go to district court, I'll be leaving it in great hands with Judge Temple. 
So how did you end up down here in Baton Rouge? You're a native of Grambling. Uh, your father, uh, Pastor A.J. Mansfield, the late Pastor A.J. Mansfield, the First Baptist Church of Monroe, uh, raised you and your family in Monroe, Louisiana. How did you end up down in Baton Rouge? Now, this is a funny story, Reverend Smith. What happened was when I graduated from high school, my dad was a college counselor. His job was to recruit people to um, Gramlin. Okay. And that's how he and Reverend Bilberry got to be really good friends because Reverend Bilberry used to do that for Southern. I see. So they would go around together recruiting for Grambling and Southern. And that's an interesting story. That, that is an interesting <laughs> story. And uh, Reverend Bilberry talked to me a little bit about that yesterday. Yeah. Um, he said that they, they were in it together. Mm -hmm. They just wanted people to be able to go to college it didn't matter which one they chose okay. just so they chose one I see. so that was their whole idea and they traveled around the whole state of louisiana arkansas and sometimes mississippi and alabama to try to get um students to come to gramlin and to southern and they did a great job that's with wonderful it. but i my dad was really big on that so around the 11th grade he said Everybody had to sit down with him and decide what you're going to major in. Not where you're going to school, but what you're going to major in. Mm -hmm. Because you were going to Grambling. So we lived there and we were going to Grambling. So that wasn't an issue. Well, I looked through the um, curriculum and I wasn't real sure that I really wanted to go to college. I wanted to be an airline stewardess. Really? Yes, I did, but my dad wasn't having that. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't having that at all. So I we sat down and we looked through the catalog. I saw this two-year curriculum. It was called pre-law. Okay. I said, I'm going to do this, Dad. And he was like, okay, that's fine if you want to do that. My thought was I'll do this until I could leave home and go do whatever I want other right. than going to college. His thought was, oh, we're getting a lawyer in the family. Yes. So after two years of that curriculum, he took me around to law schools. Mm -hmm. he, he, we woke up and he said, we're going to law schools to see which one you're going to go to. Well, none of the other ones had that curriculum. Southern, you needed a degree to have it. Um, Howard, you needed a degree. Um, Texas Southern, you needed a degree. But LSU had a program where if you finished two years of undergrad school, you could enroll in their law school if you had a high enough AC, um, LSAT score. Okay. So I took the LSAT, I applied to LSU, and I was accepted. After my freshman year, they ended that curriculum. Wow. I got, my, in, right yeah, I got in right on time. Um, my dad likes to say it was a best kept secret among people who they wanted to know. Right. And once we started finding out, it was going to be over. So, but sense. I got in in time mm -hmm. and I graduated from LSU in 1979. What was supposed to happen is once you graduate from law school, then you would be awarded your undergraduate degree in um, political science. Okay. So it was a dual track kind of thing. Well, I graduated from LSU in 79. I went back to Gramlin to try to get my undergraduate degree to no avail. So I just said, I have my law degree. I don't really need an undergraduate degree as mm -hmm. long as I have my law degree. Right. Um, you may know Yolanda Dixon, her dad, Absolutely. President Johnson, yes. was the president of Gramlin. So when he'd come to Baton Rouge, he'd always brag about, you know, his alumnus um, is a graduate of Gramlin State University, and she's a graduate. So my mom was in the audience one time, and she went over to him and said, she doesn't have a degree from uh, Gramlin. We've been trying to get her one from Gramlin, but she doesn't have one from Gramlin. So he started researching, uh -huh. and he could not um, find, find it in the curriculum, but we had the curriculum, so we showed it to him. Ten years after I graduated from law school, he awarded me my degree from Grambling State University. So you had a law degree 
before you had an undergraduate right, degree. That's correct. Wow. So when I sent in my bio, I used to put I graduated from Grambling State University in 1989, and I was got my law degree in 1979. And people would always say, oh, you made a mistake. You're supposed to be the opposite. So yeah. I stopped putting a year on there. Right. I just put, I have a degree from Grambling State University, and I have one from Mellish. Yes. But 10 years later, I was awarded my Grambling, and my mom was real excited about that. They <laughs> just, She just wanted me to have a Grambling degree. Sure. So um, I got, I have it now. Well, that's it. So, so okay, so you came down here to go to law school. That's good. And you stayed. I because stayed. you started working uh, with the state legislature. You, you were an attorney within the state legislature. And uh, what was your first love actual government work? Because there, there are various phases of law. Uh, my sister's a lawyer, and she mm-hmm. talks about the law all the time. And, and, and they're, they're all different kinds all of different law. Kinds. How did you happen upon uh, governmental law, well, if that's the, the right way of it saying actually, it? It actually, like I guess everything in my life, it just comes to me rather than me searching out for it. I, I, it feels good when I do it, or it, it's a calmness about me when mm-hmm. I do it. So I got married in 1979, and my husband um, was an, an NFL football player yes. at the time. Charles Alexander. So, Charles Alexander. Yes. So we would go to Cincinnati for him to play football because we got married right after I graduated from law school okay. because he was going away to Cincinnati and, you know, that's not how you do it in the family I grew up in. I understand. You know? So we got married, and we um, moved to Cincinnati. And what we would do is in the off season we would come back to Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, I'm 23 years old. You know, at 23, you think you're grown. You think you know everything, but you really don't. And my dad used to say, Mom used to say that all the time, but of course I'm 23. I think I know everything. Right. And I kept saying, I have a law degree. I need to use it. I have a law degree. I need to use it. What I know now, I would have been saying, oh, no, I don't need to use that law degree. I can stay home, go shopping, do whatever I want to do. But I kept saying that. So when we would come home in the spring, the legislature was in session. Mm -hmm. One of the legislators was um, a counselor at LSU, and Charles knew him. So we were at dinner with him one day, and he said, well, you could come work at the legislature. And I said, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Mm -hmm. So I went over and I worked at the legislature. While I was there, I began to enjoy it because what you get to do there is write the laws. Mm Now, you don't get to write what you want to write, but you do get to write the laws and you get to go and tell the legislators, I don't think this is going to pass constitutional Mm -hmm. muster for this reason. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a good thing for this reason. And I kind of enjoyed that. And most of the work that's done over there is from January to um, June when they um, end the session. So that was perfect for me. Mm -hmm. So I could work from January to June or July and... I could get my check, so I enjoyed that. You were crafting legislation for uh, the rest of the state. That's right. Uh, that's incredible. That, that That's wonderful work. So when did you turn your attention towards becoming a jurist? So after I worked there for a little while, and I think after my oldest daughter was born, I kind of needed— um, I wanted to do something that involved the court. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're doing drafting of legislation, your mind is busy because you have to really know the Constitution, really know if this is going to um, stand the mustard, and you have to really be 
<clears throat> a person who can explain things to other people and try to sway them if they have their mind made up. Mm -hmm. That was the toughest part of that job. If a legislator came in, he said, I want this bill. And for me to be able to say in a way that's not going to offend him first mm -hmm. and that's going to kind of change his mind that you might want to use this word instead of that word or mm -hmm. you might want to do it this way. But I had no court experience. So I thought... I need to get a little bit of court experience. I need to do something that involves the court. Um, before I did that, though, <clears throat> I was the chief legal counsel for Secretary of State Foss McKinney. Yes. So I left the legislature and went there. When he got elected Secretary of State, he went to the Black Caucus and he said, I need to have a chief legal um, person in my office and then he went to the rural caucus he went to all the caucuses in the legislature trying to find that person mm -hmm. and according to Fox McKithen everybody recommended me so he decided to hire me in that position excellent in that position you learn about elections you um, they they also handled all the museums around the state mm -hmm. so that was very a lot of experience for me <clears throat> the best thing about it is that I got to go in courtrooms to represent Fox McKithen on election issues. Okay. So I had to know the election code. So I had to learn all those things to be able to go in there and know what I'm doing. Well, I remember walking in court sometimes and thinking, my dad had run for mayor of Gramlin, so I knew about elections and I knew what they entailed, and it was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it. We'd go from house to house, and back then we'd do phone banks from our phones at home and those kind of things, but I kind of enjoyed it. So when they were fighting for African-American judges in Louisiana, I represented Fox McKithen then. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was in in, um, entwined into that personally and on my level where I was um, working at the time. I started thinking about what happens in a court and what it takes to be a judge and the things you have to consider when you are a judge. So I decided that I wanted to run for judge to mm -hmm. make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a courtroom in Ravel one time. It's a small parish, and um, it was when I got out of law school in the 80s or the late 80s. And a new law had been passed in the legislature about what you could use to determine bond. And my grandmother had called me on this case. It was one of her friend's grandsons, which my grandmother did a lot. I was the lawyer. I would do it for free because it's my grandmother. Of course. She wouldn't, though. She would charge them. <laughs> <clears throat> and she would collect $10 a week, $25 a month or whatever. And then when she would get it, she would send it to me. Wow. <clears throat> well, on this occasion, the, um, the guy was charged with purse snatching and he said he hadn't he wasn't guilty of doing it and my grandmother believed him because she was friends with his grandmother they had passed the law where you could not use something that somebody had been um, convicted of if it was more than five years ago to determine their bond okay <clears throat> so this guy had been convicted of something but it was more than 10 years ago mm -hmm. however the judge was using that to determine that his bond shouldn't be what it should be okay so I was in the courtroom and I stood up, you know, I was giving my argument and telling him about it. And I said, he said, well, I'm going to set his bond at this amount because he's been convicted of this. And I said, all due respect, Your Honor, but we just passed this law in the legislature. It, it, it went into effect 10 days ago mm -hmm. and it says that you cannot use this. And mm -hmm. he said to me, this is my courtroom. 
I do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. And he set the bond for a higher amount. I walked out of that courtroom. I told my grandmother, you know, judges shouldn't be like that. The law, if he didn't know the law, that's one thing. Right. But once I showed it yeah, to you, you that's another thing. Yeah. So then my grandmother went to work getting the bond money to get him out of jail. So he, even though it was a high bond so that he could get out of jail. But it taught me that day, if you don't like our system is going to remain a system mm -hmm. that's not favorable to the society at large or my community mm -hmm. unless we become a part of it. Yeah. And at that point, I decided that I was going to run for judge. I didn't know when. I didn't know where. I didn't know which one. I didn't know anything. Right. But I knew that I was going to run for judge at that point. So, Judge, you worked for the Secretary of State, uh, Fox McKithlin, for a time. So let me ask you a question uh, regarding the current Secretary of State, Kyle Ardwin. Mm -hmm. uh, back in uh, October and November, Kyle Ardwin uh, appeared on a stage in support of Eddie Responi, candidate for governor of the state of Louisiana, and in support of Donald J. Trump, who had not announced at that time that everybody knew was going to be a candidate for president mm -hmm. of the United States. According to the law, of the state of Louisiana, the Secretary of State has to maintain neutrality. I'm not quoting the law, yeah. but, but but that's what the law mm -hmm. says. Has to maintain neutrality. He did not do it once. He did it twice. And no one uh, raised, and no official person raised an issue regarding that. I waited for others to sure. raise the issue. Never happened. So, I filed a grievance with the state ethics board uh, against the secretary of state for uh, the actions that he took. Uh, the ethics board sent me back a letter a couple of weeks ago saying that they weren't going to consider the matter, that, that, that there wasn't anything for them to consider, that it was outside the framework of their uh, jurisdiction, their authority, which I don't understand. If it's not within their authority, then whose authority mm -hmm. is it under? The attorney general, who was also on the stage with him and saw him doing it and shook hands with him the whole time as someone who worked for the secretary of state <laughs> as a judge would you mind sharing your thoughts on 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 what mr ardwin did i i will and so that people will not th think that i'm biased because of um miss of um kyle ardwin being the secretary of state as opposed to somebody else who might look like me or you being the secretary of state i swore Kyle Ardwin in. So I just want them to know that I'm not biased against him. I um, know him, but what he did was wrong. The problem with it is that the legislators who created the law didn't put any teeth in it. And you can go through the laws of the state of Louisiana and find that a lot. Even the campaigning laws for this campaign I'm in right now, mm -hmm. there's a judicial oversight committee that's supposed to do certain things when people violate the judicial canons. That oversight committee, it has the teeth is there, but they don't always put it, dig it in. And if they don't, people just take the idea, I'm going to do this, because what are they going to do? Mm -hmm. They're not going to do anything. And that's not good, because you need that to be able to move forward in the manner that's good. Now, Kyle Ardwin, as the Secretary of State, should not have appeared on that stage. And if the 
ethics board isn't the person who or the body that's supposed to oversee it. Who is? That's my question. But I have a letter stating that the ethics board uh, said that it was outside the framework of their jurisdiction, uh, which I guess means that I can appeal to the attorney general, but he's not going to do anything either because he was uh, because on the, he was on the stage with him. That's correct. That's uh, correct. Uh, and, and, and if he was of a mind to do something, uh, he would have done it by now. So I, it, it's frustrating to me, I'm, I'm not a politician. Right. I am interested in what goes on within this state, and I am interested in a certain degree of fairness uh, that should exist within the electoral process. They, they already are doing all kinds of things, such as this morning deciding that uh, your election for uh, uh, the 19th JDC is going to be pushed back. Uh, they, they make these changes uh and it does not seem to have any logic or sense to it. And there's enough of that that goes on that we can cite that's already frustrating to people. I hear people all the time, I'm sure you do too, saying uh, there's no sense in voting. There, no, there's no th point in voting. Uh, my vote doesn't count. Uh, it's all a rigged system. system. And then when you see things like this happen and, and you can point to the fact that it's, it, it's a violation of state law and no state entity will touch it, it seems to add fuel to that already existing uh, attitude and belief. So it's frustrating. It is. And um, uh there's a quote that said, for evil to prevail, good people need only do nothing. Yes. And we see that happen over and over and over. In my opinion, if the ethics board has said that they have no jurisdiction over it, you need to send it to the attorney general because we need to know when he's what he's going to say. I don't want to predispose because he was on the stage with him that he's going to say that, but we need to know. And what needs to happen is people need to realize that these people cannot be above the law. And if he doesn't do anything, then we need to take it to the federal law. If you break a state law, somebody has got to be able to do something about it. And but you're probably going to have trouble finding people to stand with you mm -hmm. because people don't want to rock the status quo. They want it to stay as it is. But if you're going to be a true servant leader and a true community servant, then you have to be willing to do that. Yeah. So I'm going to encourage you to move forward with it, to take it up to the, um, Jeff Landry, our attorney general. And if he says, I can't do anything about it, who can? Yes. You need to let me know who can. Now, the ethics um, board is a, a a board appointed by different people and that kind of thing, and they probably just took the easier way out. I would be remiss if I did not say there is probably something that they can do mm -hmm. because it's a state law that has been broken by a state official yes. who is under their control. Yes. So that's not good enough for me. I totally agree. It's not good enough. So I, I will follow your advice, and I'll, I'll be sending something to Attorney General Jeff Landry uh, soon and very soon. Let's talk about your current uh, campaign. Okay. Um, uh, unfortunately, we learned this morning, as this is being recorded on uh, Friday uh, the 13th, hmm. who would have thought, <laughs> uh, that uh, uh, 
your uh, your election, your actual election date has been pushed back uh, because of the uh, COVID-19 uh, health crisis uh, that is gripping the nation. But that notwithstanding, let's talk about the fact that you have made the decision to step out of the city court uh, and to seek office in the 19th JDC. We've already talked about some of the differences that exist mm-hmm. within various courts. What led to that decision? What led to that decision was actually praying. I, I, I know people sometimes get uneasy about that, but I don't. I um, When Bo Higginbotham, whose seat we are running for in the Division M, he was elected in the northern part of the parish, mm-hmm. which at the time that he was elected, that part of the parish was mostly Republican and um, mostly non-African-American. So he ran up there and he won. But coming up to these elections that are coming up now, that part of the parish is 52% African-American and 68% Democrat. Yes, ma'am. So... He ran in the Southern District and to be able to vote for himself was the reason that he gave. Mm-hmm. But he ran for that um, seat in the Southern part of the parish and because somebody retired down there. So we had a retirement in the Southern part of the parish. Both, uh, Judge Bo Higginbotham ran for that seat and he won, mm-hmm. which left a vacancy on his seat for his division. That happened in October of 2019. And I've been thinking about running, thinking about running, trying to make up my mind because I was in a place at City Court. I've been there for 24 years. It was home. Um, It was in a position where I had strived and worked really hard to get it. It was in good, it's a good place. Mm -hmm. But I felt like I could have more of a community impact in the 19th Judicial District. People may think that this robe is about prestige and honor and being a high governmental official, but that's not what this robe is about. Mm-hmm. Wearing the robe and wear, being a judge is about being a servant, a servant of the people and doing the work that needs to be done. If we sit back and let only none God-believing people get these jobs. You see what that what happens to a country when that kind of thing happens. Yes. So you can't sit back and do that. I'm not going to say that it's easy for a Christian or for a, a believer to be able to run for one of these seats. What I'm going to say is you are tested daily mm-hmm. on your belief and your love for God. And when I say daily, I mean daily. Yes, ma'am. So it's a test. And I felt like it was my time to move over to the district court to be able to serve my com- community and to make a greater impact on them. So that's my purpose for running. Am I committed to, um, I'm committed to the law. I'm mm-hmm. committed to my judicial experience. Mm-hmm. I have joined all the organizations that judges have, and I've been the president of the NBA Judicial Council, which are the African-American judges. I'm the president-elect of the AJA, which are all the judges from around the country. I've been involved in the Women Judges Association just to 
make sure that our voices are heard. Yes, ma'am. To make sure that judges that even don't look like me understand that when people come before them, they are to be judged no matter their race, creed, or color. And we are molded by our life experiences. I'm not going to tell you that a judge in Boston, Massachusetts has the same life experiences that I have, but I can tell you that we can talk about them Mm -hmm. and they can get an ha-ha moment, and I could too because I don't know about their experiences. I'm excited about this judgeship. There are 15 judges on um, on the 19th JDC. Back in 1991 or 92, when we drew the map to be able to get an African-American sub-district, we drew it in the heart of Baton Rouge Mm -hmm. because we had to get a lot of African-Americans in the district. Mm -hmm. So we drew the one in the north. It's a very huge district. It's maybe two-thirds of the parish. And then we drew one in the south. At that time, we had five elected in the north, which was predominantly white, five elected in the South, which was predominantly white, and five elected in the middle, which was predominantly black. So now at the moment that we're speaking, Mm -hmm. we have five predominantly black, we have five predominantly white elected in the South, Mm -hmm. we have two African-Americans elected in the North, and we have two non-African-Americans holding that seat in the North. Mm -hmm. So we have eight um, we have seven non-African-American judges and seven African-American judges as we speak. Yes, ma'am. When I am elected to that division M, then we will have eight African-American judges and seven non-African-American judges, which will be, which shows you how our parish is growing. Right. How the our, shift is ta- the shift taking place. Yeah. It's taking place. Yeah. And the young people are moving to the northern part of the parish. Right. You know, they are right, the school systems out there are allegedly better. Yes. Um, so if you have a family, they're moving out there and it's just a shift. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that. I really am. When I was elected to Baton Rouge City Court, I was the first African American female elected there. And when I'm elected to this court, I will make the majority African-American. Let me ask you a a philosophical question about judges. Uh, Louisiana elects judges. There are other places in the country where judges are appointed. Uh, As someone who has been elected more than once, several times, uh, to the bench, tell me your thoughts on on whether or not... uh, the election process or the appointment process is better. Okay. I I can talk to that because that's something that we talk about in national organizations. Every conference that we have, Mm -hmm. every meeting that we have, it always comes up. And this is what I have, my decision that I've made on this topic. If you are an appointed judge, you think appointment is better. If you are an elected (laughs) judge, you think election is better. Sure. There are some states who have a a mixture. Mm -hmm. I think Chicago is one of them. Um, Well, uh, Illinois is one of them. Their judges are appointed, and then they run for retention on election. Really? Yes. Interesting. Um, Some of them, they are elected depending on how the vacancy comes they Mm -hmm. are elected and then they run for retention but most of them um like massachusetts same thing they are 
appointed, fully appointed, I think, in Massachusetts. In Mississippi, they have primaries where Democrats run against the Democrats and the mm-hmm. Republicans run against the Republicans. Then mm-hmm. you run and do that. Um, in Missouri, they have where you get appointed by the governor, no matter what kind of judge it is. And then, like some in other states, you get appointed by your governing body. Like in Louisiana, the council would appoint me. Mm-hmm. The governor would appoint the state judges. Okay. Um, they have committees that um, they will interview you, and they make a recommendation to the governor or to the council of three people, and they can choose one. Other places, they make one recommendation, and the governor can up and down, or the council can up and down. So all over the country, mm-hmm. they can't even agree on whether judges should be elected or appointed. Here's what I like about the electoral process. People get to decide mm-hmm. who's going to be the judge. What is unfair in my as I go through this path is that I have to run for judge. Mm-hmm. It's it's not free. I have to have money to do that. But judges aren't allowed to raise money. So I have to get people that come up to me and say, I'm going to help. I'm going to raise this money for you. Um, I'm going to do this. I'm a fundraiser. And I'm not allowed to take the money. Mm-hmm. But I'm allowed to do my own campaign report, which is going to tell who everybody gave. I mean, it's just a little quirk like that Mm -hmm. that gets you thinking, oh, my God, what is really going on here? But the idea of going and talking to people and asking them to vote for you Mm -hmm. is an idea that I like because you get to meet who lives in your community. Mm -hmm. You get to talk to them. They get to meet you and talk to you. Do I think that um, electing judges that the best candidate always wins? Only in my case does the best <laughs> Yes, ma'am. But otherwise, I'm not sure about mm-hmm. that. But it's what we have. Um, it's working. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we should change it. Okay. Okay. Uh, there was a big fight about when we were trying to get African-American judges, whether when they're elected, you get more. When they're appointed, you get more. Mm-hmm. And many people have done. We have um, the National College. The National Judicial College did. Um, they did surveys on it. They have done all kind of things on it, and they can't even come to a conclusion of which one is the best. So okay. I've been enjoying going door to door, but with this virus going around, mm-hmm. we have decided not to do that. And now that they've postponed the election, we definitely won't be doing that. But um, it's a scary thing to think about whether you're going to get elected or not because everybody you talk to that you knock on their door mm-hmm. they're going to vote for you yes ma'am and at the end <laughs> at the end you don't know if they're really going to vote mm-hmm. and the biggest thing for us in our community is like you said they don't think voting is as important every vote counts and they we need to realize that our vote is our voice yes we can't go around complaining about how things are unless we're going to be a part of it my parents took me to vote with them every single time they vote yes ma'am and i don't miss a vote i took my children with me to vote every single time i went to vote and my daughter doesn't miss a vote in fact she and her husband just moved and when it was getting ready time to vote on the st george she was like ma i can't vote over here no more i gotta go change my vote to vote where i live yes 
This morning, she got up and put on my T-shirt. My granddaughter said, I'm wearing my T-shirt for Gigi, you know. So it's it's a family. If you can make it go through the down through the generations, yes, then by the time my granddaughter is my age, we won't be sitting here talking about how we don't go vote. I've been hearing that since I was a little girl. My dad and them, they talked about that over and over. Yes, At some point, we as a community are going to have to stand up and take our rightful place. Mm-hmm. We're, we're the majority now. I just explained that. We are the majority. And what this parish is depends on us. We have got to make a difference and make it the parish that is destined to be. Yes, ma'am. You've made mention of of your family, your your father, your mother is still with you, um, your husband, your children. You're also a grandmother. Talk about family and the role of family and how that plays into your everyday life. Family's a big deal to me, of course, because I have five, four sisters. We have five girls in my family. I was raised in a house. My dad was the only male in that house. So. I heard him talk about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he could tell you some stories. Yes. Like when we were growing up, I don't know if um, growing up we – had cl- we would go shopping with my mom. My dad would go sometimes, and he'd sit in the car, sit somewhere, but he wouldn't ever go with us. But we all had our own outfits that we would buy. Mm-hmm. But growing up with four sisters, we all would trade outfits, and we would complain, and we would fuss, and we would do this, and we would do that. My dad got up one morning, he said, I don't want anybody to borrow anybody's anything, and I don't want to hear anything about anybody's anything. <laughs> he was just upset, because I would say, my sister had on my shirt at school, you know, that kind of thing. So I really had a, a great upbringing, mm-hmm. you know, five, four sisters, five girls, it was a house where there was always excitement. My mom made sure we all knew how to cook and sew. Mm-hmm. And my and um, my dad made sure that we knew how to um, take care of a car, like gas and those kind of things. Back then, they had pay phones. We had to always keep a dime in our purse because yes, my ma'am. dad would always say, um, Anything that goes on, you get out, you do whatever you have to do and go to that payphone and call me. I'm coming to get you. Yes. You know, he instilled in us that family's first. Yes. Um, and that's what carries along with me. Faith, family, and then the law. That's how it goes with me. I um, My faith is strong. I'm going to shine wherever I go. I'm not going to let people try to make me feel uncomfortable because of that faith. It's going to be what I have been, like Reverend Bill Beer said yesterday, it was in me before I was born, and it's going to be in me until I die. My family, we have two daughters. Um, I'm not going to say that um, married life is easy because it hasn't been for us. We've had our ups and we've had our downs, but through it all, we've stayed together and we've stuck together and we've been a family. Yes, ma'am. my oldest daughter lives in Atlanta. She's a lawyer, and she has three girls. Did it feel good that your daughter followed you in the, into the It law? did, Reverend Smith. <laughs> it did. It felt good because she fought it for so long. You know, and she's a lot like me. I, I fought everything that, you know, I was going to be this lawyer, and I was going to go to New York, and I wasn't ever coming back to Louisiana. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what you fight, what you're, what's trying to be back um, put into you a mm-hmm. lot. So she was, wasn't was going to be a lawyer. And she was at Hampton for two years without a major okay. because she wasn't going to be a lawyer. And that third year, she came around and she majored in English. 
if you ever want to meet somebody who's the best writer on earth, it'll be Nicole. <laughs> I sometimes center my speeches and I sometimes center my on what I'm going to say. And she, the wordsmith is just unbelievable, her vocabulary. So I had been trying to tell her she should be a lawyer, but she didn't want to hear that. But one day, one of her professors at, at Hampton told mm -hmm. her that. She's a Harvard graduate, so... Um, that's really, I know you're oh, really proud I'm proud of that. Of that. Yeah. I am very proud of that. So um, she has three girls, and she's, she does, she, she's doing the same thing I had to do, juggle your family with your practice of law. Mm -hmm. And that's a tough thing to juggle because you want to be at everything that your kids are doing, but the law, it drains you, it pulls you, you have to do these things. So she's doing a good job at it. She works for a law firm in Atlanta mm -hmm. and she's raising her three kids and her husband um, works for Coca-Cola. So they're they're doing, um, that's what you want. You want your kids to be able to go off and survive on their own sure. and do well. Sure. My youngest daughter who lives here, she and her husband have one um, daughter and I, this is going to make you laugh. Somebody was asking me um, where I was going to church on Sunday. And we always, you know, it's the campaign trail. I'm right. barely at my home church, you know. <laughs> so, but she was in my arm and she shouted Shiloh. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. She shouted Shiloh. Yes. And the lady looked at me like, I said, that's my home church. You <laughs> yeah. know, that's all she knows. Because the lady said, where are you going to church, son? And she said, Shiloh. And she's only three. So you have to instill that in them and know where, where they belong and where they're going. Right. But um, she doesn't understand this whole idea of me being on a campaign trail and not being able to spend as much time as I have been spending with her. Mm -hmm. But she's learning. She'll say, do you have to get on that trail today? I'll say, yep, I got to <laughs> get on it today. So, and that daughter is a teacher. I come from a family of teachers. My grandmother, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my parents, they were all teachers. Mm -hmm. And my dad, she went to Gramlin. Well, all she was there, she was going to ma major in early childhood education. And my mm -hmm. dad said to her, I'm happy you're majoring in education, but early childhood is too definitive. You need to just have one in elementary education or something so you can have some choices. Because mm -hmm. she was going to just graduate, open up a daycare center, and that's what she was going to do. But in my family, you don't really fuss with my dad. You kind of just take his suggestions in and you do it. And she did. And she would sit here and tell you she's so glad she did. Because yeah. now she works at a um, charter school in which she is um, over the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So had she majored in that early childhood, she would have had to go back to school to right. get where she is right. now. So you you may mention the fact that, that you're one of five young ladies uh, born to your parents uh, and then you have your mother uh, you have two daughters talk to me about what it's like to not just be a woman but to be an African American woman in America Okay. since, since they're not all in Louisiana they're not all in Louisiana <laughs> they're in America and that's one thing that we talk about a lot when we decided to um, and when I always say we because I have a lot of um young judges that I mentor. Mm -hmm. um, I, whenever somebody's elected, um, I, I call, reach out to them, I call them, I let them know, especially the African-American judges, because mm -hmm. being an African-American judge is a different plight from being a female judge or a non-African-American judge. We are so entwined with our communities mm -hmm. in ways that other judges may or may not be entwined. So we're held to this standard 
that's a higher standard than most judges because mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And being a female, we take on so much more than my male counterparts. Mm -hmm. Between raising kids, making sure everybody's fed, making sure everything's clean, making sure everybody gets where they need to get, and then you still have to come to work and you still have to be fair you have to be stern and strong, and then you always gotta throw that little mercy and compassion in. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot to kind of juggle, but you can do it all if that is your purpose. Mm -hmm. There's a difference in just going to work and there's a difference in just having a job. It needs to be your purpose. I tell my kids all the time, I even told Nicole, if law is not your purpose, then you need to not do it mm -hmm. because you're going to wake up every day saying, oh, God, I got to go to work yeah. instead of, oh, I'm so happy I got to go to work, you yeah. know. So that's what I try to tell them. And my two daughters, they are both walking in their purpose. Mm -hmm. The one that's the educator, you can see it everywhere she goes. You know, she's a teacher at heart. She loves, loves, loves kids. And and that's what she's going to do. For the first time, though, at my campaign meeting, we had 100 people there, and we went around and introduced everybody and talked to everybody. She was the last one to speak. She gave a campaign speech, something I had <laughs> never heard her do and never thought she would do. Mm -hmm. She's a lot like her dad. People would not believe this. They're a little bit... Now, I wouldn't call them introverted, but they're not going to stand up in a crowd and just talk, yeah. you know, neither one of them. But she thanked everybody for coming to support her mom, talked about how this is very different from in 95 when she was in high middle school when I ran. And, you know, it's different now and mm -hmm. how she has to um, think about when people say things about her mom, how to take it in her life. See, when I because I chose being a judge, it not only affected my life, but everybody else's Certainly. life. Charles's life, Nicole's life, and I think that was a part of why Nicole was fighting it so much mm -hmm. because then she might have the same life, you know. Dion's life, my grandchildren's lives, everybody's lives are affected by it. But I will say that they all support me 100%. Mm -hmm. Each one has a different way of supporting mm -hmm. me, but it's all something that I need. Growing up with four sisters, <laughs> my dad... Um, Probably the most, the, the, the thing that has affected me most in my whole life is the death of my father. Mm -hmm. um, and people die every day. And I go to funerals and I get that, but you don't get the finality of it until it happens to somebody um, that you're very connected with. Mm -hmm. My grandmother, my grandfather died. My grandmother, when she died, I thought that was a little bit early, although she was 89. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to have him die, because he was the glue that kept us all together. But since he's been um, gone, he died seven years ago, we have realized that we all have had to step up and take on a part of whatever he contributed yes, to our family. And it's been very, very um, difficult sometimes, but it's also been very, very inspiring mm -hmm. because I run into people right when I'm thinking about, oh, I wish my dad was here. I'll run into somebody that will say, oh, I'm doing this because I knew your father and I'm filling in the gap for him. Or uh, you're just like your dad, which is a, the utmost compliment to me. Um, so I think that... Growing up in a household where there were all women, 
having that male image there that was a strong black male image yes, is what made us have our strength and the strength that I carry today. That's why when I'm in criminal court and I see defendants come before me, I say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am to them because they deserve that, just like I deserve them to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am to me. Your situation could be temp- Your situation is temporary. You can always do something about it. Mm-hmm. You can change it. And I run into people in the grocery store everywhere. You don't remember me, do you? No, I don't. You turned my life around. I was going on this track yeah. that was going to end up nowhere. And once you sent me to jail for the time that you did, it made me realize this is not what I want. So even though you think you don't have an impact on people's lives, you do. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20, almost 25 years, making sure that the impact that I make on somebody's life is a positive impact. Yes, ma'am. Making sure that they realize that you might be in this situation, you might be in this place right now, but it's not going to last forever if you choose the right thing to do. Choices, whether they're good or bad, they determine your outcome. Yes, ma'am. If you make good choices, you have good outcomes. If you make bad choices, you have bad outcomes. But just because you have a bad outcome, it doesn't mean that you can't make a good choice after that and get a good outcome. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I want to thank you for taking the time to come and share with us. I know you're very busy right through here, uh, and I'm honored uh, that you chose to come and share in the Thrive Podcast. Honored to have you as a member here at Shiloh. And tell your three-year-old, y'all going to come back real, real soon. <laughs> okay. All right. I will. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. Come back again next time.